The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and we'll open them to Exodus chapter 25. And this evening we continue our study of the tabernacle. And this is an unusual approach because we've already studied much of it as we went through the sacrifices. Uh, The sacrifices should come at the tail end of this study, but we've reversed that and we're at the front end of it explaining the construction of the tabernacle and its various furnishings. Some of the information will be repetitious, and that's because we had to include it to properly explain the sacrifices in the earlier messages, but repetition doesn't hurt us. It just etches the Word of God deeply into our minds. Now, last time, which was, I think, a couple of weeks ago, we discussed God's purpose in building a sanctuary where He would dwell with His people But if we were to consider the tabernacle solely for that purpose, that it was a place where the people could meet with God, then we would miss many of the truths that are evident in the various symbols and articles of worship. And that would be much like understanding the church simply to be this building. I mean, how would we know that the church is the body of Christ unless we took time to look into the doctrine of the church and understand that what the church is is the assembly of God's people. And so with the tabernacle, we're doing essentially the same thing. We want to go deeper than just calling the tabernacle a place where the the people met with God, but there are symbols. There are many things that we can see here that picture the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this evening, we're going to look at the gathering of materials for the construction. God had a plan And we want to see how God worked out this plan to make it possible uh, for the gathering of all these expensive, and if you're writing down, you want to underline that, the expensive materials that God required. If you look in your Bibles at Exodus 25, we start at verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly, with his heart ye shall take my offering." And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet, and fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it a sanctuary, a place to meet with God. And this is something that we have always needed. We need a place that we can meet with God. When God created the world, God met with Adam in the garden. Adam enjoyed fellowship with God, but then Adam sinned. And he was thrust out of that meeting place, but not without hope that God would restore him to fellowship and that fellowship would have some new requirements. Now, you and I were faced with, when we're faced with with, uh, trials and when we endure pain and hardships, we need to know 
that we have a God who is concerned about us. We need to know that we have a God who's willing to help whatever need that we have. And we have a God that we can meet with. But before we can, before we can have fellowship with him, we must be reconciled to his favor and his fellowship. Now, the new requirement that God places on us for fellowship is forgiveness. Before Adam could walk with God again, he had to be forgiven of the transgression of choosing self above what God would have him to do and uh, honoring God as the one who had the right to tell him what he must do. God provided that means of forgiveness. He took the first step to satisfy his justice. And so uh, through sacrifice, Adam was forgiven. Well, our need is just as Adam's need. We walk in the depravity that Adam passed on to the entire human race. And we've studied this method by which God gives forgiveness and how we come into fellowship with him. And that is through sacrifice. Because there was a sacrifice made that was acceptable to God, we're reconciled to him. And now God will meet with this. But where is that meeting place? Where do we meet God? Well, the place where God meets us is in the heart. It's in a heart that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We call it a renewed mind. That is the place where God meets with the individual. But there's also a corporate place. There's a meeting place for the assembly of God's believers. And God does in the church what God did in the tabernacle. The nation of Israel was able to meet God at the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a place where God met corporately with them and where he gave graphic demonstrations of the Messiah that would come. In the wilderness, God... Uh, rather, the, the Israelites didn't have a Bible. They had no Bible to read. And so without the Bible, God gave them something else. He gave them pictures, gave them many pictures. And the pictures that he gave uh, in the tabernacle worship are pictures of Jesus Christ in his many works, his perfections, and the glorious beauty of his exalted son. These are pictures that were conceived in God's mind. And God had to make them uh, in such a way that we could, uh, the people could recognize them. Uh, a structure had to be built, and the conception and the building of this place that God would meet with the people just is a great example of God's sovereignty, of his predestination, of his planning, of the finances, and all things that are needed for God to, to do for us in fulfilling our redemption. Well, our first observation concerning this uh, is the God of design. That's number one in your outline. Let's talk a moment about the God of design. Who planned this building and who gave all the details? Well, of course, the instructions came from God. When a building is planned and when the blueprints are drawn, the person who conceives and the one who drafts the plan is the architect. The architect is not the one who generally does the contract work. He doesn't build the physical building himself, but he does provide the details and the specifications for it. The architect is the one who knows the science of construction. He knows the codes and the rules. He knows the principles of building. And so he oversees and he inspects to make sure that building meets his design specifications. Well, when we talk about the tabernacle, the architect of that building is God. Moses was the actual physical builder of it. And Moses never had a tougher inspector than God. God wanted to be sure everything was made according to the details. Hebrews says that heaven is not a place that is made with hands. 
But the tabernacle is a place that was made with hands. And the workmen were those that God chose uh, to give the plans to build this meeting place with his people. God uses his people as instruments. God uses us in his service to do his work. And so he did in the Old Testament, in the building of the tabernacle, as he does today with his church. And when we look at what God has made, we see just a very careful, meticulous plan that God put into place. And God always pays attention to details. A few weeks ago, I was in the doctor's office with my wife, and the doctor was explaining to us uh, about her liver function and how that affects many parts of her body. And, of course, he said when the liver is wrong, there are multiple processes that suffer. There are many things in the body that don't work properly. Well, on that day, Pam was having a lot of trouble swallowing. And the doctor sat with us for a few minutes, and he was going through the physical mechanism of swallowing. You know, we tend to think that is a very simple thing. But he told us that there are many, many muscles that are involved that are functions that have to work together to swallow properly so that food doesn't go down the trachea instead of the esophagus. One of those leads to the stomach and the other leads to the lungs. One will keep you nourished and alive, but the other, if the food goes down there, it will choke you and kill you in about five minutes. So Pam was having a lot of trouble with swallowing. She, she was choking every time that she took a drink of water. Well, after the doctor went through these many, many processes that were involved, I said, wow, all of those things that have to happen, you mean just to swallow properly? And I said, that sure does make you believe in evolution, doesn't it? And, uh, and I just said, I wonder, how did that process evolve when all the subjects keep dying before it can evolve? Uh, kind of a mystery, isn't it? But I know how that happens. Because that, it's because there is a master architect. And the architect knows every detail. He knows every little mechanism of something like swallowing. And all the other millions and millions of processes that have to work perfectly to, to keep you a warm body instead of a cold corpse. Well, next in our, in our text, we see that God gave a pattern. In the ninth verse, he said, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. When Moses was on the mountain... God gave him the Ten Commandments. There were, these are two tablets, two pieces of stone that were etched with these laws for the nation of Israel. And when God gave them those laws, they became a nation. The tablets were the unchanging moral law by which God will judge men for all time. But Moses on the mountain received more than those uh, Ten Commandments. He received all of the information of the ceremonial laws. He received all of this information that we read in Exodus and Leviticus uh, and uh, Deuteronomy and Numbers about this place of worship that God wanted him to build, about all the sacrifices that were required. And so we know that God didn't etch all of those in tablets of stone. Otherwise, Moses would have had to bring a whole library of rocks down from the top of the mountain. So these are things that God put into Moses' mind. And perhaps uh, Moses remembered or God helped him to recall at the specific times what things were needed. But on that mountain, God gave everything that he wanted him to know concerning the tabernacle and its worship. And Moses wasn't free to alter those plans in any way. 
God didn't say to Moses, now you, you, you decide how this needs to be done. And you, when you figure something out here, when you start putting the pieces together, then you put it the way that you think it ought to be made. Because God knew this, that a change in even one function, the smallest of functions, would alter all the other parts. God gave symbols, God gave counterparts in the ages to come. And if those things were to change, they would change the method of redemption. It would change the method of our salvation and how that redemption would be applied. We saw uh, some time ago when we talked about sacrifices, how that strange fire that was offered by the sons of Aaron showed that God was not happy when anyone changed any details of this plan that he gave to Moses. So there was a plan and it was a perfect design and God inspected to be sure that every part complied with his plan. Now next we see that Moses, of course, followed the plan. In Exodus 29 and 30, 18 times, it says that Moses made the tabernacle as the Lord commanded. He stuck to that plan because it represented the perfect plan of redemption. It represented the perfect Savior. There's only one way to come to God, only one way to be accepted by him. And God knew what kind of building was needed to show that plan accurately. Well, what was the tabernacle? Well, essentially, as we learned, uh, the tabernacle is all about God dwelling with his people. And what did it represent? It represented God's method. And that method is Jesus Christ. He's the one who came and tabernacled with his people, as we read in John chapter 1. Just as Israel couldn't enter God's presence without strictly obeying the plan, there's none of us that comes to God unless we come by the plan that God ordained. But we know that there are people that think that they can build their own tabernacle. They have a way that they want to come to God. They try to reach God by a plan that they have designed. And so they choose a path that they think will eventually lead them to God. And thus you hear many people say, oh, there are many paths to God. But that's not going to happen. Jesus said there are two paths. But one of those paths leads to destruction in hell. It's the broad way that leads to hell. The other path is a narrow path of eternal life. And these many, many other ways that people want to come that they say are other paths to God are only paths that are on one super highway, one many-lane highway that leads to the destruction of hell. And every exit point off of that highway leads to hell. So Moses couldn't change the plan, and neither can we be inclusive and say that, well, those who don't believe in Christ, they're also going to get to heaven. They've just got another way to get there because all paths lead to God. And I've explained that problem many times. There are horrible consequences to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ if that is true. And I'll not expand on it except to say that to make a... Uh, if that was possible, that would make the sacrifice of Jesus a cruel and unusual and meaningless sacrifice. It's God who is the actuator of salvation. He has one plan and only one plan that works. And we must remember, it's God's salvation. It's God's provision. It's his design. And so we can't alter it. We can't go to the, li- to the left or to the right. We must go the way that God tells us to go. And that's the way that Moses built the tabernacle. There was never a moment where he thought, I can add something to it. I can subtract something from it. Oh, he must stay the course that God designed. 
Well, we know that to construct a building, there is a cost involved. Jesus said, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Yes, of course, there are costs. And God wanted slaves to build this tabernacle. Now, the payment for God's tabernacle reflected God's plan of finance. And it was a plan that was impossible if God had not counted the cost and if God had not provided the means for it. So we're going to examine uh, for a few minutes tonight the way that this was done. This was accomplished by the gifts of the people. It's by the gifts of God's people. Moses had to take an offering and the people were to give willingly and generously. We see in verse number two, speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. And every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. So all of the materials for this building were to be given by the people. God didn't intend that he would just drop things out of the sky. He didn't say that as you go through the wilderness, be very careful and look and inspect very closely because somewhere in those mountains there, there's a treasure cave. And when you go into that cave, you'll find all the things that you need to build this spectacular building that I want you to make. No, God said the people are to give it. The people are to supply it. It's to be in gratitude for uh, their marvelous deliverance from Egypt and for God granting them a place where they have a privilege to meet with him. Well, I think we can see there's got to be a monumental problem if God hadn't thought this through. If we recognize anything about God, we know that God never makes hasty arrangements. God never works on contingency plans and just in case something goes wrong. But the God who, who plans implements his plans. It's always God who determines the result. We read that in, in um, Isaiah 46 this morning when God says, I will do it. This is what's going to happen. I will do it myself. I'll make sure that it's done. But there are too many who think that God's plans can be defeated. They think that God created the world. He set it in motion. Then he waited to see what would happen. And then he acted accordingly. And they believe that God, God waits to find out uh, before he acts. He has to discover what we're going to do. But that can't be true because the scripture says that God knows his works from the beginning of the world. He's already determined what will happen before the foundation of the world. Before the world was ever created, God ordained a sacrifice. He ordained that Jesus would be a sacrifice for our sins. So it wasn't possible that Adam would come into the world and not eat of that tree. He was going to eat of that tree because God had already ordained a savior. And so it's, it's impossible to think that God hasn't already ordained those who will believe because he knows all contingencies but never works contingently. Now, though it appears sometimes that he might, it can't be because our God is an immutable God. When we see something that looks like a contingency, we've only seen one page of the details. And the master builder has hundreds of pages of details. And they all come out in the end in the exact place where God determined they would be because he devised the master plan. Otherwise, if God had not done that, there's not a promise that's made that we could have guarantee would be accomplished. If his plans are subject to change, then our salvation is not secure. But we have infallible hope 
of eternal life because God never changes. So yes, God had a predetermined plan. And when it comes to the finance of this building, God had his plan. Now the Israelites didn't see it. Uh, They were in the middle of, of gathering for the plan. When they were in the middle, they had no idea that there even was a plan. They didn't even... Uh, know what, what, what was going on here. I mean, they, they, um, they didn't see what God was doing until they got into the wilderness and there at the foot of Mount Sinai, God gave them these instructions and why he put all this, these, uh, these things into their hands that they could use to build his building. So God planned to give them all the resources they would need. Well, first, in the gifts of the people, this is where we'll spend our time tonight, and that was with their ability to give. Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai was only briefly removed by time and distance from Egypt. Joseph, their benefactor in Egypt, died 200 years before, and they were made slaves to Egyptian pharaohs. Well, how much wealth do you think that they would accumulate as slaves? I've not read of wealthy slaves. Uh, Nothing a slave possesses is his own. He belongs to the master, and whatever he has is provided by his master. And we do well to remember that because we're also slaves. The Word of God says that we are slaves to our master, Jesus Christ. But we have a master who provides for us. He owns us. He owns everything that we possess. But we also know that our master is a friend. And our master is a father. And our master has made us heirs to everything that he possesses. And one day all of it's going to be ours. But that's not the case with Israel. Israel was not, was not in slavery to a good master. Their master was a taskmaster. And he was cruel to them. And they were poor. They were beat down. And they were suffering. And they had nothing. And so where will they get all of these things that God asked from them in verses 3 through 7? You see what God asked for in the offering? There's gold here. There is silver There's brass and fine linens. There are expensive dyes and spices and oils. And if I could veer off for just a moment, I'll just take one of those. We could talk about gold, but that's too obvious. We know that's really hard to get. Um, Just ask Lino how much gold that he's taken out of the river on his many costly excursions. Um, Surely, we do know this. Slaves don't have gold. But might I mention something else that's very expensive in this list? In verse number 5, the Lord asked for ram skins dyed red. That seems like a simple thing, doesn't it? Ram skins dyed red. But in the ancient world, red was a very expensive color. Remember Thyatira in the New Testament? That there was a purple dye that was made there from two sources. It was extracted, one source was a shellfish, the other was from a plant. And the extraction process of those dyes was very expensive. And so garments that came from Thyatira were the most expensive in the Roman Empire. There were only the very wealthy that owned clothes from Thyatira. And those clothes became the standard of of royalty, those colors, uh, colors for the wealthy, colors for the officers of the Roman army who displayed them as an expression of the wealth and the opulence of the Roman Empire. Well, your Crayola box might not tell you this, but uh, purple is a shade of red. Red is primary. Purple is a shade of red and blue. Well, in verse number four, there's purple and there's scarlet. And in verse number five, there is red. Well, the Israelites didn't have expensive dyes by which they could change the color of these skins. 
But when Moses asked, they had garments and fabrics that were very expensive. They were dyed with these expensive colors. But they're slaves, aren't they? They're slaves. How do they have this? They don't have gold. They don't wear fine clothes. They don't have these expensive dyes. Where did they get this list that God required? Well, the answer is what God demands, God supplies. When he asks for your money, you don't calculate and say, where am I going to get it? You just give the money because God will supply it. And listen to this, that when God asks for righteousness, you would very well ask, where am I going to get it? Because you don't have any. But when he asks for righteousness, God supplies it. And he gives it through his own son and the sacrifice that he made. It's the righteousness of his, of his son that comes through faith. So what God asks, God always supplies. Well, if you'll turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. This was before Moses made himself known to Pharaoh. This was before Israel had any idea that God would soon bring them out of Egypt. In fact, at this point, they didn't even know the name of God. Moses didn't know his name until he met him at the burning bush. Now, we don't have time to read this entire chapter, but you should read it and you should know it because it's background for much other information in the scriptures. If you doubt that God has a sovereign plan and that God knows all contingencies, then just read chapter 3. God told Moses what to do, what, to hap- what would happen when he did, and how that would result in Israel's freedom. Now, I don't want to stray too far from the point. Well, would you look at verse number 18? And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. And now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, I want you to see here that God set Pharaoh up to refuse Moses' request. God did not intend that Pharaoh would say, okay, all right, you can go. And then he just let Israel go three days into the wilderness to return. And we see in verse number 19, this is what God said. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not by a mighty hand. Pharaoh will not let you go. Why? Because God didn't plan that Pharaoh would let them go, which... uh, would lead to a string of defeats that would bring Pharaoh down. God did not want Pharaoh to let the people go at that point. Now, be sure, though, that God didn't devise a contingency plan just in case Pharaoh said, oh, it's okay, you can go. Go three days. No, God ordered, God ordained Pharaoh's response. Now, hold your place there, and I want to read to you from chapter 9. This is what God said to Pharaoh. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite Thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Paul repeated that same in Romans 9.17. And he argued that God is sovereign in our choices. That we don't choose to do anything except God directs what we do. Like it or lump it, that's the consistency of Scripture. And I point that out to show that God always works with a predetermined providential plan that is not contingent on anything we do. He doesn't do anything because he foresaw what we would do. Now, in our context, we see the plan of finance was determined before Israel even heard about the God who would lead them out. You wonder how God could do this? 
How are all these details determined unless God guided every step of Israel's deliverance? And we need to know this, that God does the same in our salvation. But returning to Exodus 3, let's see how God intended to finance the tabernacle. We go down to verse number 20. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. Now you see, God said, I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. What does that mean? After 10 plagues, does that mean now Egyptians love Israelites? No, Egyptians didn't love Israelites. They hated what God did to them. The favor was to get rid of them as quickly as possible to stop any more plagues. God said, go plunder the Egyptians. He said, they're ripe for you, for them to give you everything that you want. So you don't need to break in. You don't need to steal it from them. You don't need to go and beg for it. Just go and get it because they'll be glad to get, give it to you just to get rid of you, to get you out of Egypt. What will they give? Well, look in the list. Jewels of silver and gold. What else is there? Raiment. That's the clothes, the expensive clothes, dyed with valuable dyes. And give them red, they, give, they gave them red and purple and scarlet. You know, I watched one of these new Bible movies not long ago. I don't remember what the name of it was, but it was about Moses leading Israel out of Egypt. And it showed them on the shores of the Red Sea and there was no way to cross. And it was interesting and uh, I think nearly laughable because they showed the crowd that followed Moses. And there might have been about 50 people that were standing on the seashore. That's Hollywood, not the Bible. There were at least two million people behind Moses, and there might have been as many as six million. It wasn't 50 people that plundered the Egyptians. There were at least 600,000 men, according to Exodus 12. Numbers 145 is more precise, where it says there that there were 603,550 men that were 20 and above, the age of 20 and above. What does that mean to the narrative? Well, it means that they carried massive amounts of gold and other stuff out of Egypt. Now, you go to Exodus 12 and we can see what happened. Was God right in Exodus 3? Would this work out according to his plan? Or would all of this blow up in God's face? Exodus 12, verse 35. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And they borrowed of the Egyptian jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required. And they spoiled the Egyptians. They spoiled the Egyptians. God had a plan. And his plan wasn't, well, go try this. Go see if this works. No, it would work because God ordains. God decrees. He says it shall be and it shall be. Well, the plans for the tabernacle weren't drawn up there on the mountain. God didn't wait till Israel got into the wilderness and decide to, to build the tabernacle. God didn't say, now, now that we're here, let's see what we've got to work with. No, the plans were in place long before Israel left Egypt. God counted the cost and he made sure they had everything in supply. There is a pattern for it. 
And God accumulated, accumulated everything they needed, and the people were to give it accordingly. What God demands, God supplies. Now, I don't know about you, but everywhere I turn in Scripture, there's affirmation of God's unfailing sovereign plans. Nearly every page seems to have an example of how God ordains and God provides. I, I don't understand how anyone doesn't see this. Uh, when it comes to the salvation of our souls, which is the most important thing that God plans, somehow they think God forgot to ordain, that God forgot to plan. And so he stands by biting his fingernails, hoping that we'll do the right thing. How would that be in God's most glorious purpose that God would abandon the way he always works? Thousands of years of human history have shown the way that God works. But they say, no, not in salvation. He abandons the method. He puts us in charge of the supply. Well, I, that's enough of that. You've heard that before. There is a list of materials here that slaves must supply. How will they? Well, amazingly, the Egyptians gave it to them. And they gladly gave it. Anything they wanted, they just gave it to get rid of them. That's, that's, is it not the pinnacle of irony that they did this? Pharaoh refused to let them go three days in the wilderness to worship. And now they go out of Egypt, never to return again. And Pharaoh paid them to go. God works in mysterious ways. Pharaoh said, I'll not pay for that wall. And Trump said, yeah, I mean, God said, yes, you will pay for it. And you'll pay every penny and you'll do it gladly. You know, that, that's an amazing thing. But that's God. Maybe your God doesn't know, but mine does. Well, I don't intend to keep you here much longer. There, there are many more observations to make on this and uh, on this text about stewardship. So let me just stop at this point and I want to make an application of what we've learned this afternoon. God tells us what to give. He has a plan of finance for his work. His work must be done. And there are often times when it looks like we can't do it. There are times when we say we just can't do it. Our resources are too limited. There isn't enough to go around. Well, we all know the cost of living in Sonoma County. Uh, I think I read in USA Today that Santa Rosa is the 11th most expensive city in the country to live. I get angry when I look at my water bill. My water bill is three times higher than what I paid in Kentucky. I read that the California legislature recently passed a law that says by 2021, the water usage per person will be limited to 55 gallons per day. We're in one of the most expensive places in the country to live, but folks, it's like living in a third world country. The roads are the worst anywhere, and they just keep taking money and more money for it. And then what about this? You know, I also read in USA Today that the level to receive housing aid in San Francisco is a family of four making less than $117,000 a year. Now, if you make less than $117,000, the government in San Francisco will give you housing aid. Now, don't get me started on other things, and don't get me talking about recology and their economic plan for garbage. Um, you know, it costs something like $400 a month to pick up the garbage here at the church. And I surmise from that that garbage is a very valuable thing. So I think, it, I think it might be better if we just save up our garbage. Um, at home, they replaced my garbage bin with cheap plastic and started charging me twice as much to dump half of it on the ground instead of in the truck. So it's a big problem that we have here. It just costs a lot of money. So how are we going to 
take that and give it to God. Well, some church members say, we can't. We can't do that. Uh, they're not sure that God can make Egyptians pay for the tabernacle. Oh, they're not sure. Uh, and, and they just tell God that plan of finance doesn't work. Giving 10% of my income, that's not possible. And, you know, they, they, that's impossible to do that. We can't fit 10% in after we pay for the vacations. We can't fit 10% in after we pay for the boat and the house and all that stuff. How does God ask me for 10% when there's no ability? I'll tell you how. What God asks, God supplies. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And these are God's instructions before entering Canaan. And I want you to see what God would do for this ragtag bunch of slaves that came out of Egypt. Now don't forget what Pharaoh did. Pharaoh gave him a credit card to Ralph Lauren and Versace. And if you look here at verse number 7, uh, Deuteronomy 8 verse number 7. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil or oil olive and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass." When thou hast eaten and art full, then shalt thou bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Go down to verse 18, or verse 16 rather. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at the latter end? And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand have gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. God gives power to get wealth. Let's look around us at our building. In a few months, this group of impoverished people will be the owners of about $5 million in property. Might even be more than that. Uh, I, I told you a few years ago, we, we, we got an offer from someone who wanted to buy the church property. Uh, their intention was to build a strip mall here. I don't know if that's possible in this neighborhood, but they made the offer. I don't know if that could be done, but I do know, let's, let's suppose they subdivided this piece of property for housing. Well, there'd be a big payday that would come out of that. And, and uh, we recognize, I hope, that as Christians, this is not our goal, is it? It's not our goal to line our pockets, is it? No, our goal is the kingdom of God. We, we want to build the church in the kingdom. Now, I want to stop there with that statement just for a moment, just to give you a little bit of a lesson on something. We want to build the church in the kingdom. You know, you often hear people say, we need to build the kingdom. The Bible never says one place, not in any place, that we build the kingdom. Do you know why that's true? People confuse kingdom with the church. You can't build the kingdom. And the reason you can't is because the kingdom is extensive over the entire world. The kingdom of God is everywhere. You can't build God's kingdom. We build the church within the kingdom of God. That's, that's what we do. So God gives us wealth. He gave us a place where we could meet with him. And he gives us a place where we can meet with him forever. That's heaven above. And so I think that I'll give God what he wants because he has a plan that's far better than my plan. God knows all contingencies. We trust God to supply what he asks. That's what faith in God does. And I'm counting on that.
because God knows all of his works from the beginning of the world. So that's our first lesson on this text. God will supply all he asks. Trust him. Trust God. Never question what he asks. You know why? Because he might just be getting ready to plunder Egypt. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the truths that we learn from it, the lessons that we have here about your unfailing, matchless grace, the provision that you've made for us, not only in our salvation, but to take every aspect of our lives, all of it's in your hands. And Lord, we just need to trust you to do your work, to do your will, and you'll take care of us as you've always promised. Bless your people. We thank you for the people of Berean Baptist Church, those who have sacrificed, those who had the foresight those many, many long years ago. We, we thank you for them who built a building here and uh, made it a place where people could come to hear about Jesus Christ. Thank you for that, Lord. And may we be, may we be guardians of the, of the vision that they had to keep this church here preaching about Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org